Good morning. Time we come together to worship corporately. It is an honor to be able to do that. I ask you a question. What do you think can keep people from God? What is it that can keep people from God? Now this could be actually addressed to people who have gone to church all their lives, taught Sunday school, be very devout, zealous, sincere, serve in the church, give, and yet, even being upright and moral and intelligent, having a great background, a promising future, successful, rich, wealthy, prosperous, extremely religious, a leader, young, and energetic, influential, a leader spiritually, morally, and socially, and also has a drive for eternal life. But there's something missing in that life. Lacking some kind of peace or joy, uh, comfort. We've all known people like this. That's good people, right? It's good. As far as human standards go, this guy is really... Matter of fact, I feel like I'm not even close to that kind of goodness. Not even close. It's very convicting. Have you known somebody like that? I bet you probably have. Or at least probably pretty good, right? Characteristics, but they still lack something. As a matter of fact, you know that they lack eternal life. As a matter of fact, you would do whatever it would take, say whatever it would take for that person to know Christ. They can be good, but lost. Close, so close, but so far away. I encounter people like that quite frequently. Decent, moral people. A lot of them have been raised in the church. Parents taught them right from wrong. They hold responsible jobs. They obey the law. They're faithful to their merit in their marriages and they attend church, serve, they give. They're involved in youth activities, scouts, maybe coach and sports, give a lot of their time. That would be the kind of person that you would want for your neighbor, wouldn't you? That's a good person. Even good people, I put good in quotes, because that's what we're emphasizing today, but even good people need salvation. They are not good enough. There's a question that has to come up. What must a good person do to be saved? That's the question today. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I've done all those things. I'm good. Most people are told, if they're good, they're told that's a good man. That's a good woman. And they flatter themselves, telling themselves that they are good for the most part. But what Satan does is he blinds us from the enormity of our sins. We don't see him. And we compare ourselves with others that we know that are less than good or less than those standards that we just mentioned. But no one is good enough for heaven. No one is. God's Word states there is none righteous, no, not even one. Where does that leave us? Well, even the best people need salvation. So, how are good people saved when all they know is that they are good? Let's uh, turn to our uh, Scripture today. It's in uh, the book of Luke. Gospel Luke chapter uh, 18. This is the rich, young ruler. 
Everybody here has probably heard of that story. Let's uh, stand and uh, let's see the story that Jesus tells us. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. Okay. Jesus heard this. said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have a treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, And who can be saved? But he said, Things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Lord, thank You for Your truth your truth comes and convicts for anybody who has become saved inheriting eternal life. They realize that they are sinners and you are holy. And they bow in humility and recognize that they need their sins forgiven and only you can do that. That's how the good people, bad people, any people, say. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Wow, familiar story, isn't it? This actually is not a parable this time. This is real. Of course, parables can be real, but in this sense, this man walks up to Jesus. Luke, as a matter of fact, puts it in sequence that fits right with where we've been. You remember the Pharisee and the tax collector? One is righteous, one is not the way that it looks. When it comes down to it, that good Pharisee is one who needs to be humbled. He is not righteous. And the one who is the tax collector is the one who would be most seen as what? Unrighteous. If anybody was unrighteous, it's this sinner tax collector. And Jesus said, He walked out of there justified. The other man who seemed to be righteous did not. The Pharisee. And he, then he followed that up with, You have to be like a child to enter the kingdom of God. You have to be humbled, recognize total dependence on Him, because you have nothing to offer God. So that's where he's left us, and he continues the same train of thought. But what he does now, he expands it even further to the max. I mean, Pharisees were righteous, and they were, as far as the people were concerned, and people looked up to them. This man, if anybody is going into the kingdom, it should be him, this rich young ruler. He's got it all. So he asked a question. Now we're right in the middle, uh, middle of the, our study of the Gospel of Luke, right? We've seen the context where we're at. It's still saying the same thing. He hammers it down even stronger. It almost blows your mind. You're going, this man, he's not saved? Are you kidding me? Well, in Luke, also in Matthew, you will find this story. And in Mark, you will find the same story. They all add a little bit 
to the same story. Certain words are put in to help us get a structure of this in a complete way. Uh, it's called the Synoptic Gospels. That's what they are. Synoptic Gospels. A little bit of seminary thought there. Synoptic synonym. What does synonym mean? Something that is the same. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke report a lot of the same stories, a lot of the same parables, a lot of the same miracles. Whereas John will have a few of those, but John does it a little bit differently and proves the deity of Christ in a way that is rather profound. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are doing this. So we might get a little help from the other Gospels in certain terms that we'll just add to this uh, Luke passage. Now, with that being said, it says a ruler questioned him. Most likely he's a ruler of a synagogue. That would be the most likely thing. That was quite a high privileged position to rule the synagogue. He's a leader. He's in a position of prominence. So with that being said, this man has to be really good looking, doesn't he? I mean in the sense of his characteristics to rule in the synagogue. Matthew 19, verse 20. If you wanted to turn there, you can. If not, we will come right back to Luke. But in Matthew 19, 20, after Jesus says, follow these commands, the young man said to him, all these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? I keep all the commands. But he's a young man. So now we have a ruler who is... Young. Now, in um, in our Luke passage, it will say in verse twenty three that he is extremely, not just rich, extremely rich, <coughs> mega bucks. So that's why you get the rich young ruler, as most people call this man. He really lived. At this time, put yourself back at this time, put yourself in the crowd. And seeing this man come to Jesus and ask him this question. He's quite wealthy, he's extremely rich, he's young, he's a ruler. Now it says in Mark ten seventeen, in that other another synoptic gospel, Mark ten seventeen. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him. Did you see that? Ran up to him. This time it just says man. It doesn't say ruler. It doesn't say rich. A man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He's asking the same question. Jesus gives him the same spiel here. He gives him the ten, you know the commandments. And he comes back and says, Teacher, I've done these things. Jesus fell in love for him. Now that's interesting. Mark puts that term in there that Jesus fell in love. Says, One thing you lack, you know, go and sell. All you possess, give to the uh, poor. You have treasure in heaven. These words, he was saddened and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. It's the same guy. This is the rich young ruler. And we see here that he runs up to Christ. Now, if I find that fascinating, uh, I don't think he's still at the 100 meter here, but it sure looks like it. You have to admire this man because he really wants to get to Jesus. He runs to Him. He's not too prideful just to kind of walk in casually and be real cool because the guy has to be cool. He's rich. He's young. And he's a ruler, right? He's a ruler and he comes running up to Jesus. Now, Jesus has to be a very special person for this man to do what he just did. That's kind of humbling, isn't it? Since he was drawn to him, he had heard about him, maybe even seen him, and there he is. He 
bursts into the crowd, comes running into a crowd. He's got this urgent need. He has a reputation, but he's not protecting it here. He comes running full speed, tears it into the crowd, comes to Jesus and hits his knees, almost like sliding in there and bowing before Jesus. This is not the standard way for a ruler of a synagogue, a rich man to do, to come up to somebody like that. He finds this Jesus very fascinating evidently. Something special about Him. I believe the masks are off of this ruler here. It's really honest. It's not protecting his pride. It's a good teacher. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do? I think this might be one of the reasons why Mark says Jesus felt a love for this man. Because he is seeking in his own way for truth. And he comes running to him to show how serious that he is. Is this man serious? Absolutely. And he bows before him. Now does he see him as God? No. Not at all. He doesn't see Jesus as God here. He does call him what? Good teacher. In fact, C.S. Lewis has said, we have no right to call him a good man or a good teacher (coughs) because he's much more than that. A lot of people today say he was a good man. He was a great teacher. That's as far as it goes. And that's really where he's at at this time. He asked the right question. Matter of fact, he couldn't have asked a better question. I think this is the all-important, ultimate question in the universe. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Isn't it? There's something more than this life, and I don't want it to end the way that it could, as far as death is concerned. There's an afterlife. Did this man believe in an afterlife? Absolutely. You know what? He believed the Bible. Every word of it. He believed in heaven and hell. He believed in righteousness. He believed that God is holy. Why why do I say that? Well, he's a ruler of the synagogue. They didn't have liberals leading a synagogue at that time. They were very fundamental in their beliefs. They understood the Word to be the Word of God. Comes up and asks this question. He's zealous, isn't he? He's good. But he's lost. He asked the right question. He asked it to the right person. Can you think of any better person to be asking this question? He was asking about the right subject. Oh, the fields are white for harvest. It's time for this man to be saved. What an easy opportunity to be able to present the Gospel to him and tell him that you're right there. You're right at the door. Here's how you can get in. What is eternal life? That's what he asked. I mean, uh, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What is that? Eternal life. Well, it's Ioneos, which is eternal, ever ongoing. Zoe, life. Zoe is godly life. There's a word called bios, which we get our word biology, which means a study of life. Bios, biography. It's a book about a person. His life. So, in this sense though, it's zoe, not bios. And that means a quality of life. It means godly life. Heavenly life. 
God is life. There's no other life besides God. He's the one that gives life. He is life. And it's about quantity or quality. A lot of people think, well, it's ever ongoing. It's forever and ever and ever. Yeah. But it's not about quantity. It's about quality. Godly life. He wants to know God. He wants to know life. This is not a word that he just dreamed up and just started tossing around eternal life. Jesus has already talked about eternal life. If you look at John 3, everybody knows John 3.16. There's a phrase in there that sounds like what we're talking about here. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him, anybody who believes, shall not perish but have what? There it is. Eternal life. Ionos Zoe. Ionos through the ages and ages and ongoing and ongoing. Everlasting. It means to know God. John 17, Jesus has a prayer. It's amazing that it's written in here. This is before He will be crucified. And He prays for His glory. And He prays for the disciples. And He prays for you guys in that prayer. A magnificent highlight in all of the Bible. This one stands out like Romans 8 does. Like Isaiah 53. Here we have Jesus Himself praying and we get His words. And what does He say? Verse 1, He spoke these things, lifting up His eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. It's getting at that time. Even as You gave Him authority over all flesh, that to all whom You have given Him, He may give eternal life. All the ones that have been chosen before the foundation of the world. Lord, I'm praying to You. Father, I'm praying that those ones You've given to me will have eternal life. Did He give everybody to Christ? No. He gave the ones that He chose and He'll later do that. Now look at verse 3 and we get the definition of eternal life. This is eternal life. Are you ready? What is it? That they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. That is eternal life. What is it? Knowing God. Did you know the moment that you come to Christ and repent and confess your faith in Him, your eternal life has started You are in eternal life now. That's why you are a citizen of heaven. That is why you are to live in the heavenlies, as Colossians 3 says. Because you have already inherited eternal life. God life. It's the life of God in the soul of man. Henry Skugel wrote a book called that just a little bitty booklet. The life of God in the soul of man. That is eternal life. You've started your journey on knowing who God is. And each and every day as you renew your mind through the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, you get to know God a little bit more. And you see another glimpse of glory. Then you see another glimpse of as you study Him and you see Him working in your life, even in your experiences. But most of all, the authority of the Word of God speaks and He changes you. That eternal 
so is being made like Christ. Sin is being burnt off. It's already been paid for, but the vestiges of it, whatever's remaining there, that flesh, is being done away with. It's to possess the life of God, folks. That's eternal life. It's a deep, intimate knowledge of who God is. That should be your ever ongoing, zealous passion to know who God is in all aspects. All the topics that are throughout the Bible. God, Christ, Holy Spirit. Who this God is. I want to know more. It's to have fellowship with God. You came here today to fellowship with His believers. You're fellowshipping with Him also. As we fellowship with Him seven days a week, it's not a temporal kind of life. It's not an earthly kind of life. It's a heavenly life. Now, He didn't know God. He wanted to know God. He didn't know God in any kind of intimate way. So when he says eternal life, he doesn't know all the aspects of that, but I can tell you, it's like, I want to know God. Does he know about Him? Absolutely. The Scripture was read constantly at the synagogue. He had access to it. The scrolls were kept in the synagogue. So, what he wants is the right thing. He goes to the right person. This is an automatic, isn't it? Isn't this a gimme? Jesus, who often corrects people who make statements that are wrong, or they make it right, but they don't understand really what it means. And he says something that you go, what's wrong with that? Good teacher. Agathos. Note how he addressed him. Good teacher. Sounds good. But Jesus, knowing what's in his heart, sees the erroneous thinking that he has. And the man really is saying, you're a good teacher. He's merely a good teacher teacher. That's as far as it goes. And it's unusual to address a teacher, rabbi at that time, to call him good. They never did that. You can look at any writings throughout Jewish history and you won't find anything about where anybody calls a teacher or a rabbi good. They call him rabbi. They don't call him good. This synagogue ruler calls him good teacher. That's pretty profound. He doesn't really know what that really means, though. Jesus is going to challenge him. This man thought that he's a good man, and he's talking to another good man. Maybe a little more elevated than he is. That's why he's coming to him. Because he has some great teaching. He's much more than a teacher. If we just see him as a teacher, we're lost. That's really where he's at. This man is good in the eyes of the community. In himself, he's wrong in his thinking. He did not recognize really what his need really was. He didn't know the depth of this need. Jesus is going to move to correct that erroneous thinking that he has. First, there's two things here. First, he's going to deal with this man's perception of Jesus. How does he view Jesus? How do you view Jesus? Well, it's God. He's holy. He's the one that forgives sins. You know, all those basics. This man doesn't know that. It's just a man who's good. Kind of like him. And secondly, 
He will deal with this man's perception of his own unworthiness. So he first corrects about, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And then he deals with this man's unworthiness. You know, there's two aspects here. John Calvin says, and this really sums up a lot of his writings, still with our teaching today, that's very solid. Two things, people. If you can't get anything else out of today, two things. Highlight it. Know God. Know yourself. That's it. Because if you really know who God is, you see that He is a God to be feared, that He is awesome, holy in all ways. We, me, to know me, I have to see my inward self. What I really am, I'm a sinner. With my sins needing to be forgiven, or else I'm lost. There is nothing good about me. Know God. Know yourself. I need God. And then, that's the only way that I can be good. Good in Christ. Now that's what the man needs to know. And that's exactly where Jesus is going to take him. But I do want to tell you, he takes a different route than a lot of the modern kind of way of bringing the good news that we have, the modern thought is to say, oh, say this prayer. I believe you, Jesus. And you're saved. Well, we're not talking here about legalism. We're not talking about good works But that's where Jesus is kind of starting at with this man. He tests him. Now, I'm not so sure if this would have been the wise thing to do. If he would have taken an evangelism class, evangelism 101 would say, whoa, whoa, Jesus, wait a minute, you're going to turn this man off. You are really going to upset him. You're going to make him sad. Which is what happened. Well, before you get the good news, what do you need to hear? The bad news. Say, so, Dennis, that's that's not politically correct today. No, it's not. And neither is Jesus, neither is his word. But it is truth, which is what we need desperately. Now, that was point number one. We move on a little bit quicker now. Here's the answer. So we got the question. What's the question? Well, must I do to inherit eternal life? Is Jesus going to answer it? Yeah, He does. Kind of in a roundabout way. He knows the ruler's heart. That's one thing we don't know when people approach us. We don't know their hearts, do we? He reminds them of the commandments. He recites some of them to him. He says, don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. The guy's hearing that. He's going, yeah, yeah. Hey, no problem. <laughs> I got it. I got that. I'm good. <laughs> Jesus doesn't say anything about coveting. Hmm. Or worshiping God above everything else. That's the first half of the commandments, right? The first table. The second table is about how you love your neighbor. The first one is about loving God, worshiping Him. He doesn't even say anything about that first table. Basically goes into the second table, gives him some to think on. Young man makes a bold statement. Claims to have kept all of these things. Jesus doesn't say, oh yeah, really? You think so? Kind of, but He's going to say it in a different way. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He wants to show Him that there is none who is good. 
Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. That definitely is saying that if I'm really good, then I am who? God. I don't know if he gets that or not, but it's definitely a correction. Nobody can be good. You can't call any other person good. You can only call God good. Who's standing there right with him? Well, as far as he's concerned, he's not God. Jesus is not God. He's a man. He's a teacher who happens to be really, really good. I mean, even better than maybe this good rich young ruler. So why does Jesus begin with this part of the Ten Commandments? It's dealing with relationship of man to man. So man to God, he starts with man to to man. Actually, I think it makes it much more tangible. makes it more real. How do you measure one's love for God? Unless you know the heart, you really can't. Unless they say they don't believe in God or you know, some statements that you obviously see that they're not Christians. But you can see how people treat each other though, can't you? And that's really measurable. Very measurable. So, this man would, like anybody else, deal with outward appearance. He's a legalist, really. Like the Pharisee. He's a friendly legalist. He's a guy that you would really like. You'd love to have him as your neighbor. Even much more than a Pharisee. This guy's probably not going to go around bragging how he is and wearing the, the robes and saying prayers and uh, all day long for where people can see him. Fasting. Did Jesus fail in evangelism? We don't see this man becoming saved. It's not any easier than this. I mean, does it get any easier? I mean, this guy, all he does is come up and say, what do I got to do to get, get an eternal life? What would you say? I mean, Praise the Lord, this is what I've been praying for. That somebody would come up. How often does that happen? Hey, I really want to know about the Lord. Can you tell me? Yes! <laughs> you know, I would still do that. Yeah, let's sit down. Let's go through. It might take a while. <laughs> Jesus, He knows this man's heart. How can I get to heaven, Jesus? Now, we know that Jesus has not taken evangelistic training. He is the evangelist. He is the good news. He is the gospel. But this is a piece of cake. Bring him on in right now. Look at this guy. He wants it. He's eager. He he ran there. He didn't walk. He kneeled down in front of him. I mean, if anybody is ever a candidate, this guy, what must I do? Boy, an opportunity. I love it. And I, You know, we would be really... Right, and saying you don't do anything, right? Jesus doesn't say that. You don't have to do anything. Or eternal life is completely free. Is that correct? Yeah. Grace, right? Just believe in Jesus. And what's that called? Easy believism. You guys have heard of it. That's the time that we live in. Easy believism. Just say that Jesus is Lord and, and you're a believer. Matter of fact, just say Jesus is God and uh, just say that you're okay. Jesus says, keep the Ten Commandments. Wait, this, this seems to go against the grain of what I know to be what the Gospel of Grace is. You know, do, do things and you can get into heaven like that. Is, is Jesus kind of wrong here? Well, obviously he's not. But the one thing you never do with such an evangelistic prospect is to tell him to keep the Ten Commandments. Now we all know that obeying the commandments won't get anyone to heaven. It's not going to do it. That's exactly what Jesus did. Have you seen him do this before like this? Go to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. 
verse 8. But we know that the law is good. It's helpful. It's useful. If one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, and for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Amen, right? According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. What's the law, therefore, it's to show one their sin. Now, go to Romans chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. Now we know. By the way, in verse 10, look at 10. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Now, how many is none? Zero. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Why did Jesus say there is none good? Because the ruler was thinking he was good. And then it starts at the throat, goes all the way down through there, the lips, the mouth, all the way down to the feet. In verse 15, everything is sinful. There's none good. They don't even fear God. It says in verse 18 before their eyes. And here we go. Here's verse 19. Here's where we were supposed to start. Now we know the context. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. The rich young ruler should have known this. Where did all those passages come from? Well, it's out of Romans 3. Romans 3 wasn't written yet. Came right out of the Old Testament. Familiar passages, he would have known these passages. There is none good. Verse 20 Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law, we're speaking about the Ten Commandments, the very Word of God in the Old Testament comes the knowledge of sin. Know God. Know yourself. Know that you are a wicked, miserable, evil sinner and you don't deserve anything from God. That's knowing yourself. You say, I don't like to think about it like that. Well, God just says, may your mouth be shut. No one is good. We have to say the bad news. Here's where you're at. That's how he's getting to this man as he answers it. It sure seemed like Jesus blew a choice opportunity. Did he share the gospel clearly with this eager young man? He must have blown it. Of all people, he can bring him into the kingdom. Jesus has something to teach us the way the gospel message must be brought forth and how to share it in particular. How to share the gospel with good people. You know some. They're really good. Was he saved? Well, I'll tell you what, he's really good though. Those who believe in God and have decent lives need to be saved. What? You're saying people who believe in God? Yeah. Even they believe that there's a God. They even know many of the right things. But they can still be lost. That's downright scary. 
This has to get to this man. And, folks, I stand here and I'm going, this is just exactly the same answer that I've heard people say over and over and over and over. Because the man comes back, says, these commands? All these things I have kept from my youth. I've done them all. I still don't have eternal life. Something's not right. I don't have peace. I don't have a joy. What? All these things I have kept. Folks, I want to tell you that is, I'm amazed at the audacity as I can look back at it now on the, uh, the other side of this. Back then, I probably would have been the same as the rich young ruler, only far less than him. I can't even compare with his goodness, folks. And I doubt if anyone in here could compare to how good he really was. And that's what we're doing. We're taking this to the max. And if somebody's that good, it has to be a Christian. <laughs> I can't measure up to this rich, young. I'm neither one of those and a ruler. I'm not even that. I'm far less than he is. But the audacity. I look at it now. God is the judge. But just by reading His Word here, this is really sad. Oh no. He said, well, the guy's really good. He has a good heart. No, he doesn't. He does not have a good heart. This is drawing the line at its max. Because we still tend to judge people on... on it's really good. He's got to go to heaven. You know, really a set of really good things. And, and uh, he says he believes in God. You know? He says he believes in the Word of God. Yeah? Jesus is teaching us something here. The man claims to have done all these things from his youth up. He comes to God with his good works. Here, God, take these and. Get me into eternal life. There's still something lacking. Here, here's my offering. What is that? It's a stench to God to offer up our works to Him. J.C. Ryle had a statement on this. I will tell you that J.C. Ryle wrote back in the 1800s when it was not so politically correct in uh, England. Quite the preacher he is. If you've ever read some of his works, you go, wow, I wish we had preachers like that. He was a lot like C.H. Spurgeon. He lived during that same time. With this man saying, all these things I have kept from my youth, Ryle says, an answer more full of darkness and self-ignorance, it is impossible to conceive. He who made it could have known nothing rightly either about himself or God or God's law. This is impossible to conceive that somebody would say that they have kept the commandments. They have been perfect except for something that they're missing. Have you ever heard anybody say they're perfect? Well, we asked that on the Bible study or, or maybe this last week. Maybe it was last Sunday, I guess it was, wasn't it? And some people have said, yeah, I've heard people say that they were perfect. So, I guess this guy is here. Only he's lacking something, and he knows it. The audacity. You know what? He is worse than the Pharisee. You want to know why? We can see how the Pharisees lifted themselves above people. Remember the Pharisee and the tax collector, and you know he's saying, "Hey, you know, um, um, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people." Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week. They, you know, they showed people that outwardly, and they probably even said it sometimes. This guy is hidden in that. He doesn't say those things. And he's in the same position they are. He's very self-righteous. And to say, I keep them all. I keep the Ten Commandments. Well, all you have to do is do... Um, uh, Ray Comfort. Oh, have you ever stolen a pencil? <laughs> right, right. Have you ever thought a lustful thought in 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 your in your mind? 
Yeah. Well, what does that make you? Adulterer? Fornicator? He says, okay, you've sinned. He goes down the list, you know, and all of a sudden he's showing, maybe they didn't do those things outwardly, but the problem was inwardly. Right? There are thousands of people, I fear, in congregations in the body of Christ today that know nothing of their own sinfulness. They would be like this rich young ruler. They're good. They're outstanding people. Well, in Luke 18.11 we see that... uh, we just read about the Pharisee. That's where this guy's at. He didn't have a true understanding of his own sinfulness. Pharisee didn't. This guy didn't. Secondly, he failed to see something else. The law cannot save you. It was never designed to save you. Romans 10 says the Jews tried to establish their own righteousness. The sinner must recognize that the law can't save you. What does it do? It kills you. The law makes you die. If you see what it is, to Paul it was coveting. What's the key for this man? Why did Jesus lay this heavy requirement on this man? Because a man cannot cling to his idols and still have Christ. That's where Christ is taking him. He's giving true evangelism here. Jesus sought to show them that he was an idolater. He worshipped his money. Before it's over, he will finally realize that. Remember the uh, parable about the worries and riches and the pleasures of this life? How about the parable of the rich fool who described a man in that parable that there were goods that were to be stored up and he had to have more barns and he kept that and then that very night his soul was demanded. Paul warned that those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin. Money is like a loaded gun. The gun is a useful tool, isn't it? Nothing wrong with that gun. But if you're careful with it, it's useful. It's good. Deer hunting yesterday, for instance. If you like to eat deer, which I do, it takes a gun to kill the deer. Guns are good. But you have to be careful with that gun and know how to use it. It's a dangerous thing, though, if you don't treat it with caution. So here we are. This is the key for this man as far as his wealth is concerned. He doesn't treat it with caution. So, you don't keep the first half of the commandments. It's really what it comes down to. He does not love God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he does not love his neighbor as himself as he's not sharing some of the things that he should be doing. Leon Morris observed this. When a man takes seriously the requirements of the law, he is on his way to coming to Christ. He takes seriously what it says and he acts upon it. Spurgeon says this. They need to feel. They need to feel that they've broken the standard of God's holy law and what it does. He he says, it's like a rope around the neck. It's gotten tighter and tighter. And it's right at the end. That's what the law is and your sin. Guilty and condemned before God. One reason that we see so many superficial professions in our day, in the body of Christ, is that we don't use the law. Antinomian. 
which means against the law. But the law is what will drive one to Christ. Will you give up everything that is precious to you? Jesus has been saying that all along. Forget yourself. Deny yourself. Take up the cross. Follow Him. Paul did that in Philippians 3.8. Paul says, More than that, I count all things to the loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, trash, so that I may gain Christ. Whatever it is, I don't need it. He is all I need. Amen. Rich young ruler did not have this view. Now it says that Jesus had love for him. He felt great compassion for him. Jesus knew he was hopelessly lost. Jesus gives him the exact truth that he needs. He sought for truth. He got it. How did he respond? Verse 23, 18-23. Jesus tells him, you know, here's what you lack. It's sell what you possess, distribute it to the poor, you shall have treasure in heaven, and you come follow me. Sure, he swallows. When he had heard these things, he became very sad. For he was extremely rich. Extremely rich. This is a sad departure. There was something that he loved better than eternal life. Can you imagine that? That's where Jesus had brought him. The thing was his money. The love of money was his master sin. That's the sin. It's the love of money, not the money itself. Jesus knew what he was doing as an evangelist here. The man is unsorrowful and unsaved. And I feel for him. Jesus felt for him. He was compassionate to this man, but he had to give him truth in a very hard way. He could have made it very easy. He said, do you believe in me? I'm God. I'm Jesus. Do you believe in me? He says, okay. Then you're saved. But Jesus knew there was something there that was more important than Christ. Folks, that's the ultimate sin. That's idolatry. You've broken the very first commandment. Everything else is broken after that. Have no other gods before me. What was his God? We see it. He went away sadly. He could not depart from what he trusted in most. His possessions, his wealth. He walked away from Jesus. This is taking it to the ultimate max, folks. Because we all know those good people. It could be some of us here, sitting here today. It's talking about repentance and faith. Now, the difficult lesson is brought forth. At 24, Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. I'm sure the man's getting ready to go. He's really sad. He's grieved. We do know he walks off and then he speaks to the disciples. And For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. A difficult lesson, it's hard for the wealthy to enter into the kingdom. This man would not abandon his possessions. Jesus defined his life. It was very clear where he was at then. That's why you have to deliver the gospel that way. Very harsh to a man who thought he was okay. Jesus shocked the disciples. Luke 18.24 How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Disciples All the Jews thought that wealth was a sign of God's blessing. 
You're getting into the kingdom because God has blessed you because you're good and you get to go there. That's what they thought. Well, if you're wealthy, that means you, you know, God's treating you really good because you're good. <laughs> That's not it at all. He's saying, you know, what does Corinthians say? First Corinthians 1, 26. Not many mighty, not many noble, not many wealthy, Salvation for a rich man is not just difficult. It's possible. Now, Jesus doesn't leave it with that. But do you hear what He said? No, salvation is impossible for this man. For any other man that's rich. Matter of fact, He's really going to take it. It's impossible for every person ever. Disciples were stunned. (laughs) Then who can be saved? If that's the case, if this rich man, if this man is good, this leader of the synagogue can be saved, who can be? They're saying, wow, is there going to be anybody saved if he can't get in? I'm not going to get in. It's totally God's doing. Who can be saved? He said the things that are impossible with people. It's impossible for anybody to get themselves saved. Rich young ruler, he can't get saved. Except it be God that does it. You have to humble yourself. You have to be like the tax collector, which is where we were at last. You have to be like a child. He was good. As good as anyone can get in God's or uh, in this world, world standards, and like I say, well, it convicted to me because boy, this man was a lot better than me. I mean, really, a lot better. I cannot condemn him at all. I can say, look at look, look at what he did, but he did have audacity to say what he said. I've kept them all. When you hear that from somebody, do you want to correct them? course. Jesus corrects him and says it's impossible for you to get salvation. With that kind of thought, you'll never make it. What kept him from eternal life? His wealth or his idol, his idolatry. That's what kept, that was more important to him than anything else. Christ is second but my idol here, my wealth, I cannot leave it. I will keep it. That's it. That's sad, folks. His love. His love of money. His love of money. Is exactly was his idol. And for other people, it's so many different things. And even as a Christian, we all have things sometimes that seem to take the place of God. We are idol factories in our flesh. As I think Calvin had said, we are, that's sin. Anytime you've had a sin, you know, you know what has happened? You've just had an idol. It took the place of God's truth. It took the place of God. That doesn't mean one loses a salvation. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying we even have this battle, don't we? So I can't be self-righteous here and point to this rich young ruler. I'm I have a compassion for this man because this man is all over the place. In all the churches today, there are people just like him. And we have compassion for them, don't we? They need to know there's a holy God and they need to know what their heart really is if they have not repented of their sin. And like the tax collector said, what? He was unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He's not looking at anybody else. He's just saying, be merciful to me. What can hinder us from salvation? If there's somebody here that doesn't know Christ, what can hinder you from ever entering into eternal life? What can hinder you? To those who are Christians, and we leave it with this, What can hinder us from our walk with Christ today? 
Let's pray. Father, what a great holy God You are. Your Word is truth. Your law is good. Because it drives one to see their need for Christ and to come to You. It's the very tutor that brings us to You and salvation and eternal life. It doesn't save. Christ's work on the cross is the only thing that saves. We're to put our trust, absolute trust, in that cross and not anything of ourselves desiring to follow Him with our whole being. In Your Son's name we pray. Amen.